Hi, everyone, and welcome to Recovering the Pines podcast show. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brandon Lee, and I want to introduce you to two pretty amazing human beings right here in Arizona, Doug Dolan and Albert Black. They are both the co-founders and owners of Recovering the Pines, an incredible treatment center up in Prescott, Arizona. Albert, Doug, good to have you both here. Thanks, Hi, how Brandon. Are you, Brandon. It's yeah. awesome. Well, this is our very first show. So uh, we really wanted to get the word out about Recovering the Pines, what they're all about. But before we do that um, and, and talk about their treatment and their trauma healing program, I want to get you all to know who they are, their purpose, and their why. So um, first off, how we all got connected, which is kind of crazy. As many of you know, I'm I'm the owner of Art of Our Soul, the you know, art healing program. I reached out to you guys because I was thinking about expanding up into Prescott, Arizona. And I did a random reach out. I think I texted you, uh-huh. Doug, yep. um, and said, Hey, my name is Brandon Lee. Like, how can we meet? It was like within a day or two, yep. you guys came down here to Phoenix and we had a conversation. And it was in that conversation, I was like, My God, this is something bigger than just mm-hmm. art. <laughs> yeah. I want to know these guys and I want to know their purpose and their why. And, um, you know, Doug, I want people to get to know you. Um, tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about kind of your background. Um, what does that look like and where that's led you to today? Yeah, so thank you for having us here and always love having the opportunity to be able to share my story, however it can help somebody else. You know, I was very blessed. I came from a really good family, Uh, bounced all over the United States growing up and come from a large family. I'm third of seven kids, rigorously devout Catholic family, went to Catholic schools my whole life, was a good kid, played sports, did well in school up until the age of 14, where I went to a party with my two older brothers and I blacked out drinking from the very first time. And from there, I stayed a blackout binge drinker for about 13 years. And it transformed over that time going from you know, feeling very loved and a part of a family to feeling very detached and crawling out of my skin on a regular basis. You know, that was a big part of why did I make a decision to get sober? Now, leading up to that, I did really well in work. I, though on the weekend, had multiple arrests. I'd wake up in jail, having no idea why I was there. I'd been thrown in padded cells, had police helicopters on me, and I ended up totaling a car on a business trip and had four of their co-workers in the car and almost killed us. And so, although I had the external pressure of now I have a DUI, my company originally was going to fire me. I was already tens of thousands of dollars in debt at that point in time. Um, And my family had told me, we love you, but we can't help you. You need to go somewhere to get well, because you've told us multiple times before you're going to stop. You haven't. We're afraid if we bail you out, it's going to lessen the consequences and you might not change. And so I had all these external pressures, but the number one reason why I made a decision to get sober is because I was crawling out of my skin on a regular basis. And anybody who's been one of us knows what that feeling is like, where I lived in North Laguna. I had a beautiful ocean view. I had a great job and I hated my life. So just that juxtaposition of it looks great on the outside, but crawling out of your skin on the inside is horrible. It's a lot to unpack there. So first off, you and I have very similar stories in that I was also raised Catholic. We both grew up in Southern California. I was more Newport Beach, Laguna Beach area. Uh I started acting out when I was 15. And I think, you know, the number one question is why did you begin to act out at age 14? 
because you grew up in like a well-to, you know, you grew up in a well-to-do part of the country. So did I, right? And people always looked at me, Doug, and they were like, God, at age 15, like, how did you become a cocaine addict if you went to church, you went to Catholic school, you had a good family and, you know, you were around all that Mm -hmm. trauma hit me at an early age, but why did you start acting out at, at 14? You know, for me, what it was is, so not only did I grow up in a very rigorously devout Catholic family, also heavily military family. So there was a lot structure, a lot of discipline. Being one of the older of seven kids, I had a lot of responsibilities taking care of the younger siblings, always had to get good grades and things of that nature. And so I'm not saying that as like poor me, but there was a lot of discipline and I felt like there was a very high standard that was set for me. And so drinking was like, hey, it was like a release for everything. Like, you can't blame me. I'm drunk. I can go do whatever. Right. And I did. Like, I did a lot of immensely reckless, devious things while I drank. And I felt like it was a vacation in every bottle. So that was a big part for it's me. It's so interesting because I think sometimes when uh, kids grow up in these hyper disciplined families, the moment, the moment they go to college, yeah. right? It's yeah. sometimes that those kids are just like wild childs on campus. You know, it's right, all that like right. pent up energy where they have to draw inside the lines or never allowed to color outside the lines. And the moment those lines are kind of gone, that structure is kind of gone, man. They're like splattering paint everywhere on a piece of paper. So, all right. So I want to bring Albert in. Um, Albert, tell tell us a little bit about you. What did that childhood look like? And, and as Doug kind of explained, the wheels went off at around age 14. How about you? Well, I had a, a normal upbringing, I think. And, you know, it's funny, the last comment that you said about, you know, once we get out of that home environment from all the structure and discipline, which I had too, and I got to college, my dad committed suicide mm-hmm. when I was 19. So that authority was gone. And that's when I went off the rails. So, you know, growing up, normal kid, I didn't really party in high school. I didn't really like it. Did I drink a beer? Yeah, but I wasn't into it. And then as soon as I went to college, you know, of course, there was a lot of partying, but I still wasn't really into it my first year. And then my second year, I joined a fraternity and that's when my dad committed suicide Mm. and I went off the rails. You know, I just started drinking a lot and I too was introduced to cocaine. And I loved cocaine. Yeah. And so it just took me down a really dark path. So fascinating. So, you know, the moment, as we all, you know, sitting here today can talk that, you know, trauma can be some, you know, oftentimes the triggering moment for people to begin to numb out, right? Mm-hmm. Any mm-hmm. kind of traumatic life event. And trauma looks different for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, we always say, right, what may be traumatic to me is not traumatic to you. Mm-hmm. And trauma that was impactful in your life, I would look at it and be like, well, how is that trauma, right? We should never compare traumas. And, you know, you know, the losing your father, you know, right. um, to suicide is a traumatic life event, you mm-hmm. know, and especially at a young age when you really don't even know how to process that. Yes, I was 19. But just so, you know, getting to know me, I you'll hear me talk about my father and you'll hear me talk about my dad. Those are two different guys. And so my mm-hmm. biological father was never in my life trauma. You know, so my mom and him divorced when I was one. He was a Marine. My mom was in the Navy. They divorced when I was one. This was during Vietnam. And then my mom remarried when I was three and he adopted me. So there's two men in my life. So he was never there. And then this guy checked out when I was 19. And again, I didn't realize the impact that it's had on my life until just recently. And trauma is real. You know, it sets you on a path. Yeah. And I think sometimes people... 
don't even understand that just the simple act of divorce mm. is very traumatic to a child. Mm-hmm. Even if the parents are co-parenting, yep. it's so important that those kids be able to process what they're going through at a young age. And I think sometimes society, we overlook, oh, the kids are too young, they'll never remember. No, their, their bodies actually remember the energy that's around them. And even if it happened when they were one or two years old or even zero to six months, right? Mm-hmm. They remember, maybe not consciously remember, but that trauma still impacts impacts the wiring of the brain, you know, and all those things need to be looked at and addressed. Um, you know, I, this first episode, you know, we're just kind of skimming over a lot of stuff. We're going to get, we're just going to be a weekly, a weekly episodic show. So we're going to be able to get into the nitty gritty about a lot of certain things and bring up other mm-hmm. parts of your story when, mm-hmm. you know, on those relative topics. But, you know, I always, I always ask people their why, especially in the treatment industry, mm. um, you know, for better or for worse, um, I would say a majority of treatment center owners are in recovery themselves. But um, I always like to know the why, because mm. understanding somebody's why about what they do, what wakes them up every morning, what drives them is so crucial to the overall program that they're about to sign up for or send their mm-hmm. loved one to. Mm-hmm. And I, that's why I want people to really kind of get to know you and your why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Doug, I'll start with you. You know, you kind of briefly told us about some of the childhood impacts, you know, mm-hmm. when you started kind of going off the rails and you grew up that I think that's so identifiable because I think a lot of people out there, you know, they grew up in structured living homes, you know, sure. they grew up yeah. in the church, but they still went off the rails. And I think your story is going to eventually resonate with so many people, but what's your why? Yeah. You know, my why has evolved over time. And so when Albert and I first met and he shared his vision of what he and his wife, Karen, had for recovery in the pines, like it so resonated with me. At that time, I had a copywriting and editing business and it was something I could do, but it wasn't a calling for me. And when I heard what they were trying to put together and he gave me the opportunity to come sit in and be a part of it, like immediately I knew this is what I want to do. Tell me again, how, what was, how did you guys actually <laughs> physically meet and connect? Well, I was his son's football coach at flag football so my two boys and his son and i wasn't well yet i was just getting (laughs) sober so i was this i know you well yeah and there are times where i think like my god what is albert like unwell yeah so (laughs) you should see him around like nine and ten year olds at that time how he was coaching i was just smashed my kids (laughs) would just smash kids and i loved it but so i'm his son's coach and 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 how we came together i was in a coffee shop one day with my wife and she's like hey there's that dad because we had already started playing football i'm like she's like go talk to him i'm like karen I just want to be left alone. I just, you know, we live in Mayberry. It's a small town. You're always running into people. Were you sober at the time? Oh, yeah. You were in recovery at that time yeah. that you two met. Yeah, you just yeah, had Just barely. I'm a year life. into yeah, this. Right. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, I was know, about 14 years sober at that time. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yep. so one year-ish, 14 years. And so I, my <laughs> wife talks me into going up and talking to him. So I talked to him and we just connected right away. Wow. So from your observation as somebody who had 13, 14 years at the time where your children were being coached by Albert, what was going through your mind observing him at that time when he had about a year? Well, it didn't help and it embarrasses him for me to share this story. Share it. That's what this is for. Exactly. (laughs) So we're at a football game. His mom's there. I'm meeting her for the first time. And she says, I think my son's doing cocaine. And I'm thinking, this is where we're getting started. Like, this is the first thing that you say to me. And then I'm thinking, oh, man, I got to keep an eye on this guy. Because it's one of those things, as you know, you know, when you're in recovery, you just see things in people. 
that somebody who hasn't been through this before that you just don't have the same sight, right? So I could see that he was, yeah, very early on in recovery at that point in time. And so just had me question like, okay, what is this going to be like? But I also saw in him, you know, you asked that why. I saw a passion in him. I saw a genuine desire. It wasn't a business scheme, although you have to look at the business of this. But I saw somebody who had a genuine heart that wanted to do something different and make a difference. And so that really impacted me. Was recovering the pines already in existence while you were coaching? No. Um, I was in the process. I had hired a guy um, that was put a lot of treatment centers together, uh, Dr. Nugent, Jim Nugent, and this guy, you know, prominent person nationally. And he he died, but the year before he died, this was the last thing he worked on. I said, Jim, I want to open up a treatment center. I used to own a real estate and mortgage company. This was not part of the plan. But once I started to get sober, I knew that I needed to help other men. And so I asked him to help me put this program together. And so we spent a year just talking and putting programming stuff together. I was telling him that I wanted to start a Christian program, which I don't see a lot of them out there and he helped me. And so that was what was in the works when I met Doug. It's fascinating. So the, the foundation, because you both come from very religious backgrounds, even as children, that was kind of indoctrinated to you the moment you were born into this world. And it also serves as a huge foundation of your program. Mm -hmm. You know, it's faith-based program and really using that as a foundation. Why is that so important as to your why? Because that is connected to your why, right? Having that faith-based foundation to a life that you call worth living now. Why Why is it such a huge part of the foundation? Well, I think for me, you know, I was raised Catholic too, and I, I just always believed in God, but I knew I know when I was younger and my early 20s, I wasn't walking with God. I believed in Him, but I wasn't living right. And it's just always been, you know, what I'm, I'm about. I mean, I don't struggle with my faith, and I just, I just returned home. You know, for me, it, it's what drives me. It's what guides me, you know, and again, I'm not a Boy Scout either. You know, and so uh, I, I want to follow God, but I'm also a human being. And, you know, I have the daily challenges that everyone else has. So for me, you know, again, I was raised Catholic. I felt like I was forced into that. I had no say in it. Right. Uh, I'm grateful for it now. It wasn't how I saw it then. So uh, as I left home, I strayed away from the church, still believed in God, but I only kind of went to God every after like trying to you know, fix things a thousand times on my own. I can't get it right. So I'm praying to, hey, God, please come rescue me. Uh, For a period of time, uh, a couple of years, I also studied Eastern philosophy. I just branched out into other areas. I'm very curious. I wanted to go exploring. I sense of return back to my Christian roots. And so the faith, part of the faith was in the 12-step process. Part of it was also and taking a look, I can still remember the very first AA meeting that I went to. Same. It was at the Canyon Club in Laguna. Um, it was back in April of 97. I was sitting in a room of about 100 to 120 strangers. I'm terrified. I'm sitting in the back. Again, I had just got a DUI. I just lost my license. I'm on the verge of getting fired. My parents are saying, we can't help you. Like, I'm ready to lose everything. And I see people connecting. And I see people laughing. And actually, in my first meeting, somebody picked up a five-year chip. Somebody picked up a 10-year chip. And somebody picked up a 20-something-year chip. And I'm thinking, how is this 
possible. Like they've got to be lying. That's not possible. Because I'm just like wondering, how am I even going to get to one year? Right. And so part of the faith was seeing the real evidence in front of me of other people as they shared their stories. They sound as broken and twisted as I had felt at that time. And it's like, okay, if something greater than them can help them heal. Can I have faith that if I put myself first into this process, which was the 12 steps, it also led me back to God. It got me to a point where I just asked God, can we please do a do-over? Because I was raised well. I was raised to know right from wrong. Like it was drilled into me, not just in school, but also at home. And I violated just about everything of it. So I felt like, how am I going to have any relationship with God? Like you told me everything not to do and I went and did it, right? And so I just asked God, can we please have a do-over? And so I'm desperate here. And I believe God knows my heart. Whereas before he knew I was broken, but I was just asking him to save me and let me go out and continue to do what I was doing before and please clean up my messes after me. This was just a very different experience. So part of it was going through the AA process. Part of it was seeing the living example of other people, uh, you know, who have gone through the process and seeing the healing in them that it could be possible for me as well. And then part of it was, although my family told me you need to go get help, they were always there to be supportive. And so those healthy connections and family are are a big part of it too. See, I grew up with a version Catholic as well yep. in Orange County, and I grew up with a very punishing God. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was the God that was always drilled into me was that you're going to be punished and you're going to go to hell if you do this, this, and this. Or you know, if you're gay, you're going to go to hell. So on my the way I was taught and indoctrinated, yep. Yep. you know, in in the Catholic Church when I was growing up, it was just always a fear of being punished and being sent to hell, right? Mm-hmm. And especially when we're young, our our frontal lobes aren't fully formed. So what is told to us mm-hmm. and indoctrinating us, we're going to believe. And so I had this true belief that I was going to be burning in hell. And so I was just like, well, then if I'm already going to burn in hell for who I am, well, then I might as well just go out there and be reckless and crazy. Exactly. Now, the first meeting is we should just do a, a, a podcast episode <laughs> on what that first meeting was like because that would be a fun show because when i was in the hospital after an overdose twice in two weeks you know this little nurse came to my bedside and was like do you believe in god Mm. brandon and i looked at her and i said no i don't um and she goes that's okay my god still believes in you and really was the first time shown uh, Mm. a lot of empathy and compassion this by a frontline nurse who had saved my life and and she goes okay listen i have saved your life twice in two weeks here's Mm. what i'm gonna do um i'm gonna give you ten dollars in cash out of my own purse and i want you to use that to get into a cab and take it to my church when they release you mm-hmm. on Melrose and Mansfield. And she goes, just make me the promise you'll do this. And I did. And that was the first meeting I went to. And it was at a church. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God. Um, and I'm walking through the gates and I see the door and I do a 180. And I start walking back trying to leave. And the two people who were running the meeting, they're like, hey, 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 where are you going? I was like, I'm in the wrong place. And they're like, are you here for an AA meeting? I was like, yeah. And they're like, no, you're in the right place. Come on in. And they like had a fish bowl and they had all these raffle tickets and they're giving me these raffle tickets. So I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, and I sit in the back in the corner of the room, like many of us do in our first meetings. And the tickets were at the very end. It was a speaker led meeting and they would draw one ticket number and you'd have to go up there and share. Well, that was God doing for me what I could not do for myself at that time. And of course, out of a meeting of a hundred people plus, they called my number. Um, and I just went up there and I was like visibly shaken just out of the ER in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you're right. I saw people in there celebrating, honestly, six months 
And I was like, how, how do you do that? Like six months? Are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, and and that was kind of the beginning of my journey. Mm -hmm. And, but I will tell you, it took me a good year to finally accept God, Mm -hmm. you know, that spirituality piece. And it was really hard for me. And so I know we're going to be talking about this on later episodes when we're going to be talking about faith and Christianity as foundation and everything, because trying to get people who've been through a lot of trauma, who've been through a lot of dark, getting them right off the bat Mm -hmm. to just commit to a program that's based on God, because a lot of people don't have a good relationship with God. I think you can, you know, elaborate on that is getting people to understand that I think humans have corrupted yes you know faith humans have corrupted in the way they communicate and what they say god is here for and wants so part of the issue for me and again this was me i'm not blaming other people how i viewed it going to church early on is wait a second i know you outside of here and i see you look very good inside the church but i know you're doing other things outside the church and so often hear that in people coming to our program or other people i talk to of like okay you know christians blow it and it's like yeah that's the point like we're all busted but the question is is what are you doing with your brokenness are you going to him or are you trying to figure it out on your own do you see him as a punishing god as i did originally too i mean i grew up in the 70s with nuns who still smacked you around and stuff like oh, that dude, so, survived high school uh, man the nuns yeah. would come back <laughs> smack me on the wrist with a ruler yeah. you're not writing it correctly that's right know? yeah, yeah it's exactly. always a punishment style it was it was you know so that's how i grew up but i came to realize you know i'm busted just like everybody else Mm. and i can't figure this out on my own i've been trying to figure it out on my own i've been trying to numb it out with alcohol with a whole bunch of other activities and things and i just saw god in a very different light and that's why i asked like could we please have this do-over maybe you're not who i thought you were and i'm hoping you're not i'm hoping you are love you are compassion you are grace you are mercy if i'm willing to lean in and and follow what you're recommending you know the path for me to go on and so it's just been a very different experience there's not a perfect person on this planet there's not a perfect christian in a church it's a matter of though hey do we admit do we confess we're busted and what are we trying to do about that versus are we just trying to look good those are just two very different people and i look at that that nurse that frontline nurse and and i see her as god working through her in order to get to me Mm -hmm. right i in trying to see those those when those kinds of things were pointed out to me, because my sponsor in recovery at the very beginning goes, okay, if God is going to be too complex right now for you to grapple with and understand and, and turn your will and life over to God, he goes, can you just understand that there is something greater than you? And mm-hmm. so what we did is actually really go through my four step, you know, and really started doing the written work. And one of the things I looked at was all my near death experiences toward the end of my using, right? Mm-hmm. It was me getting high on the, cause I'm a huge skier and I would always get high on the gondola on the way up, you know, and get really messed up. And then I would ski down and like one time skied off a cliff and landed on my neck, you know, and went numb from my neck down. And after about, you know, 15 minutes, got the feeling back and was able to get down and you know, I, one time I was using and behind the wheel and I blacked out Mm -hmm. and I ended up on the one-on-one freeway in downtown Los Angeles under an overpass Mm -hmm. with my hazard lights on and my seat fully reclined as if I was allowed to sleep and nap instead of hurting somebody else on the road. And it was going (laughs) through those experiences and I was rattling them off, right? 
to my sponsor and he just looked at me and he goes, now do you believe? Mm-hmm. Now do you believe mm-hmm. that something greater than you was keeping you alive and keeping you safe. And it was just that moment mm-hmm. of ease, that moment of seeing that my sponsor seeing a window of, okay, can you see now that there's something more powerful than you? And that's where that journey began for me. Yeah, I, I didn't struggle at all with God. Again, I was raised Mexican, Catholic, and I had that punishing God too. So um, I had a committee of men that God brought into my life. I just had a whole bunch of guys, you know, that I started to meet that started to work with me. And I, you know, I was blessed, you know, just like even Doug coming into my life, you know, 11 years ago. Um, God just keeps bringing me godly men and they kind of mentor me and get me on the path. Yeah. I would say that, you know, um, the people who we come into contact with, Mm -hmm. Uh, we were supposed to, Mm -hmm. right? It's almost like our lives have already been mapped out for us, right? And we're just here to try and figure our way through this. But God brings in uh, the right people at the right time where we're at in our lives to help us grow, Mm -hmm. right? Not to Mm -hmm. stay stagnant, but to push us, to challenge us, challenge our current way of thinking in order for our souls to grow here and live our life's purpose. Uh, We're going to wrap with uh, this first episode of Recovering the Pines podcast show. Uh, What would be a closing message from both of you on this first episode? Yeah, you know, I think the main thing, and maybe it's because of the way I was raised, and I just want to say, by the way, I'm blessed with great parents. And at that time, I didn't appreciate the way that I was raised, but today I am so immensely grateful for it. But I felt a lot of guilt and shame and guilt and shame is going to keep you sick and it's going to keep you out there. Whereas if you know you are struggling, please reach out, ask for help. Again, like I said earlier, there's not a perfect person on this planet. If you could really shine the light on everybody's lives, even the ones that look pretty and the ones that look good, if you only knew what was going on behind the scenes, right? And so it's a matter of if I am struggling, don't try to hide, don't retreat more. It's about connecting. It's about reaching out. So please reach out. Um, I'm grateful for the gift of desperation. I don't know that I was 11 years ago thinking about God, like just having these, you know, thoughts in my head. I just knew that I was crawling out of my skin and I was just desperate. And so if you're desperate out there and you don't know what to do, like Doug said, just ask for help. And I did. I just asked for help one day. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I just surrendered. And then the magic happened. Yeah. You can't do this alone. I mean, I think that's, that's my takeaway. You know, that's my closing messages. You can't do it alone. And I think anyone who's struggled with any kind of addiction, We've all, before we got to the point of asking help, we have all tried to do it on our own, right? We tried that. I'm not going to drink during the week. I'm only going to drink on the weekends. And I'm only going to really go out there and, and party hard once a month. And if I do that, then I'm not an addict, right? We've right, all uh, tried it all. We've, we've all tried to do it on our own. And I think that's the one thing is that you have to just surrender. Mm-hmm. And surrendering is not an act of weakness. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, if anything, the toxic masculinity society we live in is that asking for help is not weak. In fact, asking for help is a huge strength, Mm -hmm. right? And just like vulnerability is not a weakness, vulnerability is a strength, right? Um, All right. So we're going to wrap up this first episode of Recovering the Pines podcast and show. Uh, For those of you who are watching or listening right now, if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or any of the other platforms where podcasts exist, do us a favor, go to our YouTube channel, Recovering the Pines, subscribe to it, hit that little alarm notification bell. That way you will get an alert every time we upload a new episode. We'll see you back here for the next episode of Recovering the Pines.